section number one hundred and four of china japan and the islands of the pacific this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver b c the world story volume one china japan and the islands of the pacific edited by eva march tappan section 104 the sword of japan by sir edwin arnold a great shogun of japan the famous ayaso left it written in his testament that the girded sword is the life of the samurai the sword was indeed even more than this in ancient japan it became the central point in the morals and customs of the land the badge of honor and the token of chivalry a special and sacred weapon around which grew up the grave punctilious manners of the lords and knights of dainippon whose politeness exquisite but rigid as the steel they bore had to be imitated and was imitated by the lesser people the civilization of country always crystallizes round a few fundamental habits of that country the manners and morals of japan may all be traced to the sword the teacup and the paper house the first has made the people serious fearless punctilious in mutual demeanor the second has created their identical habits the sobriety and sociability while those perfectly transparent abodes of paper and panel common throughout japan where no secrets are hid have forced upon them a greek simplicity of domestic behavior with a modesty naturalness and absence of malvase haunt unparalleled elsewhere the sword has been now forever laid aside in public by the gentlemen of japan obeying in this with wonderful good sense a sudden and difficult edict but the signs of its ancient cult linger deep to this hour in the minds and ways of the people and it may be worth while to speak a little of the bygone importance of the japanese sword the sword-maker who forged the finer blades for the samurai and daimo the barons and knights was no mere blacksmith he ranked indeed first of all craftsmen in the land and was often appointed lord or vice-lord of a province he did not enter on his grave duties lightly when he had a blade to make for a great japanese gentleman the cat anna abstained for a whole week from all animal food and strong drink he slept alone and poured cold water every morning over his head when the forge was ready and no woman might so much as enter its precincts and when the steel bars were duly selected he repaired to the temple and prayed there devoutly then he came back to his anvil and furnace and hung above them the consecrated straw rope 
shiminawa and the clippings of paper gohi which kept away evil spirits he put on the dress of a court noble with the eboshi and kamishimo tying back his long sleeves with a silk cord only after many ceremonies when the five elements fire water wood metal and earth were well consolated would that pious artisan take his hammer in hand the blade was beaten out of steel alone muku gete the pure make or of steel blended with iron great heed was taken to have good and well smelted material each time before the smith placed his bar in the bed of glowing charcoal which an apprentice blew to white heat he coated it with a paste of clay and straw ashes so as not to burn the naked metal and never touched it with the hand hot or cold since sweat would spoil the weld and leave a blur on the steel when he had beaten out his bar eight inches long two and one-half inches wide and three-quarters of an inch thick he bent it midway beat it out again to the same dimensions thus folding and rehammering it some fifteen or twenty times as the original bar was in four flakes dr lyman in his admirable treatise on the subject calculates that at the fifteenth hammering there would be a hundred and thirty one thousand and seventy two layers increased by five following bendings to four million one hundred and ninety four thousand three hundred and four layers this careful repetition gave the metal a texture like ivory or satin wood they had names for the different watering so produced as bean grain pear grain pine bark grain and vein grain afterwards the blade was forged down to its full length the imperfect ends cut off the point drawn out and the tang fitted on upon which came the tempering but these last processes were very serious and the sword forger sat alone and solemnly sang to himself while he gave to the weapon its final fashionings they say that the difference between the swords of masumune and of muramasa two famous craftsmen was due to their singing a masumume blade brought victory and luck everywhere a muramasa sword was always leading its owner into quarrels though it carried him through them well and it would cause accidents and cut the fingers of friendly folks inspecting it being never willing to go back to its scabbard without drinking blood the real reason was so runs the legend that muramasa while he sat at his work in the forge was ever singing a song which had the chorus of tenka tyran tenka tyran which means trouble in the world trouble in the world where masamune the gentle and lucky swordmaker always chanted while he worked tenka tikke tikke which signifies peace be on earth peace 
japanese people of the old days firmly believed that both the kindly words and the unkindly got somehow welded into the very spirit of the steel so that masamune's blades prevented quarrels or brought to their welders a quick victory while muramasa had in them a lurking instinct for doing mischief a sort of itch to hurt and wound all sorts of tales were told to illustrate this there was a splendid sword of muramasa which had killed by harikari four of its possessors in succession once too when the shogun was handling a spearhead embedded in a helmet of one of his warriors the point wounded his august hand see quickly he said what is the mark upon this accursed iron for it must be muramasa's and when they came to look at the maker's mark it was indeed a spearhead from the grim sword-makers who had chanted the thirst for blood into all his yeri and katana some of the very famous sword-forgers would never write their names or make any sign at all upon their productions it is enough to try a blade of mine said toshiro motimishitu it will tell you of itself who made it most of the inferior craftsmen engraved dragons gods and flowers upon their blades but the best work does not bear such ornaments which might hide an imperfection in the metal all however except such men as toshira and masamune would cut into the tang the name and date of the sword and the owner's and maker's name swords had appellations and might be christened with such titles as osoraku the terrible or hiru the bloodsucker on a long sword noted by dr lyman the inscription ran mot shishibui mot ikubishi defend yourself with me die with me but when the blade had been forged and shaped whether it was the straight suguri or the takshi and katana carved into the lines of the falcon's wing or the cormorant's neck it had to be very carefully and skillfully tempered the japanese swordsmiths effected at one operation what european craftsmen do in two namely the high annealing of the edge and the low tempering of the body of the blade they covered it with sabi doro a paste of red earth and charcoal and then before this hardened they drew the paste away from a narrow streak along the edge afterwards putting it into the fiercest part of the fire very heedfully did the smith move the precious sword up and down in the pine coals till he saw the proper color come near the tang which would be in a few minutes then it was plunged in water of a certain temperature which thing in itself was a great secret katate the one-handed a renowned swordsmith brought the knowledge of that precious mystery dear his master taught him everything 
else except this matter of the right heat of the tempering bath so watching his opportunity he broke into the forge one day and plunged his hand into the water just as the master was dipping a reddened blade into it the master smote the audacious member off there and then with the unfinished sword but katake knew his last trade secret the fire which burned the barred edge violet left the mane or body of the blade blue or straw color and being plunged into the water the sudden chill turned the former very hard but brittle making the latter tough elastic and mild the edge so obtained was called yakiba bait leaf but there must not be too much breadth of it as it would necessarily be brittle then was the cold blade carefully cleaned and rough ground and at this stage the smith could know whether his work must be wasted or not if the smallest fault manifested itself the true craftsman flung the failure aside the false one cut a dragon or sanskrit letter or two over the blemish the grooves were now chiselled into the sword especially the chi nagashi or blood channel which in the case of spearheads would be afterwards filled up with vermilion lacquer a hole was drilled in the tang to receive the mekugi or bamboo peg holding the handle on and then followed the real and final grinding this was performed by a special hand craftsman holding the blade horizontally wrapped in cloths and with a small part only bare he rubbed it up and down upon whetstones of varying grit finishing upon a fifteenth stone of very fine grain and afterwards polishing with stone powder and oil it would be at this stage that the beauty and value of the sword came forth there used to be very many japanese gentlemen and even to-day there are some who could tell instantly upon inspection by the look of a blade in this stage who had wrought it official personages existed who gave governmental certificates of blades written on special paper and stamped the boundary between the hard shop whitest edge and the gray blue of the back must not be harsh it must be clouded by neoi misty spots and flecks not regular like drop marks but fleecy and broken apart like clouds in good steel where the clay covering had slightly come away there would appear tobiyaki flying burns isolated specks of soft white the visible grain would look as though the steel were water and it were rippling where the tempering had been perfect there would come little points of bright silver along the edge called knee only to be seen by the educated eye masamuni's swords were very full of such it must be an excellent blade if inside and underneath as it were the dark body of it there flickered the 
Utsuri, the reflection, a glimmer along the dividing line of edge and breast, faintly prismatic and resembling the mist around the moon. Only consummate judge could note and estimate the chiki, small films of white, and nidazuma, or lightning flashes, fine shining lines in the nioi, the sunagashi, resembling specks of sand in a row, and the uchi yoke, or narrow forge marks. The blade which combined these virtues was fit to sit in the girdle of a daimo, and would be worth from two to three hundred pounds, twelve to fifteen hundred of the old yen. Such a sword was often mounted very splendidly indeed, the finest artists lavishing their skill upon the scabbard, tuska, the me-nut, or studs upon the handle, and above all on the tsuba, or hilt, which was often enriched with lovely work in gold, silver, and bronze. The scabbard was generally of magnolia wood, and ended in a richly adorned kajori, or ferrule. It held, at its upper end, two small daggers or skewers, with pretty handles called kogai. These were used in thick of fight to stick through the ear of a slain enemy, as sort of visiting card. With such a weapon you could cut through five sheets of copper, and not notch the steel, and the edge put on it might be so fine that if you held it in a river's current a stalk of grass floating down would divide upon contact with it. Masume's blades could sever a bar of iron, or cut a falling hair in two. Muramasa's would slice bronze armor like a melon. The point was not much used, but Iyasu once, for trial, put a katana of Yoshimitsu's clean through the iron mortar of his physician. Immense punctillo attached to the wearing, the carriage, and the etiquettes of these precious weapons. The higher born you were, the more you might stick up the hilts of your two swords. But soldiers of lesser degree wore them horizontally. Dr. Lyman says correctly, to draw a sword from its scabbard without begging leave of the others present was not thought polite to clash the scabbard of your sword against another was a great rudeness to turn the sword or the scabbard as if about to draw was tantamount to a challenge and to lay your weapon on the floor and kick the guard towards another was an intolerable insult that generally resulted in a combat to the death. Buffloun says that the rules of observances connect with the wearing of the long and short sword, or the single sword were very minute, but have fallen into disuse. In former days the most trivial breach of these elaborate observances was often the cause of murderous brawls and dreadful reprisals. 
to express a wish to see a sword was not usual unless when a blade of great value was in question and then a request to be shown it would be a compliment appreciated by the happy possessor the sword would then be handed with the back towards the guest the edge turned towards the owner and the hilt to the left the guest wrapping the hilt either in the little silk napkin always carried by gentlemen in their girdle books or in a sheet of clean paper the weapon was drawn from the scabbard and admired inch by inch but not to the full length unless the owner pressed his guest to do so and then with much apology the sword was entirely drawn and held away from the other persons present after being admired it would if apparently necessary be carefully wiped with a special cloth sheathed and returned to the owner as before a guest on entering a friend's house if the host was an older man or of higher rank would take off his longer sword and either lay it down at the entrance or hand it to the servant who admitted him who would thereupon place it on the sword rack in the position of honour in the apartment if on somewhat familiar or equal terms with the host the guest might carry the long sword into the house but detached with its scabbard from the belt and lay it on the floor at his right hand where it could not be drawn the shorter sword was retained in the girdle but in a prolonged visit both host and guest laid that also aside these high manners of the steel bred that japanese courtliness and chivalry which have survived it the cult of the katana is now forever at an end in dai nippon the samurai and lords of the land have laid aside their proudly cherished weapons and go abroad as peacefully as the akindo the merchant yet there are fine swordsmen still to be found among the quietest of the emperor's senators and lieges and i have myself seen wonderful things done by some of them with ancient blades moreover the measured speech the deep and heedful reverence the silent dignity the instincts of manhood which clustered round the steel are still characteristic of the race and the swords though no longer worn are proudly and carefully preserved in many a mansion castle and temple thocides says that the nation which carries iron is barbarous and under that remark the united states where almost everybody seems to possess and carry a revolver would stand condemned but japan by a wonderful effort of abnegation on the part of her upper classes altogether laid aside twenty years ago the old and perilous habit of going abroad with a girdle full of swords and daggers it was a noble submission to new ideas yet to this day a japanese gentleman raises your sword to his forehead 
and bows deeply before he examines it nor will he uncover a single inch of the shining and sacred steel without gravely obtaining your permission and that of the company present end of section 104 this recording is in the public domain